This Washington Post Live podcast is sponsored by Justice Action Network. Justice Action Network is the largest bipartisan organization working to reform the justice system at the federal level and across the country. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. With the fate of a major bipartisan criminal justice reform bill hanging in the balance on Capitol Hill, two of the bill's co-sponsors, Senators Dick Durbin and Chuck Grassley, chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee, joined the Washington Post on Tuesday, December 4th, to discuss the likelihood that Congress will move forward with a vote on the proposed law before the end of the year. Other speakers, including Governor Tom Wolf of Pennsylvania, as well as supporters and opponents of federal and state criminal justice reform measures, highlighted important debates around reform of mandatory minimum sentencing, the country's bail system, police community relations, and other key issues on the nation's criminal justice agenda. In this segment, previously incarcerated advocates and experts discuss firsthand experiences with the prison system and the impact federal mandatory minimums and sentencing disparities have had on families across the country. Let's listen. Good morning. Um, I'm Sari Horwitz from the Washington Post. I cover the Justice Department, and I'm thrilled to be joined today with three experts, the leading experts on sentencing reform. Um, and I'm especially thrilled because I know them all personally. Um, I'm especially thrilled here because I want to introduce you to Sharonda Jones. I first met her three years ago in a visiting room inside Carswell's Women's Prison in Fort Worth, Texas. She had already served 16 years for her first nonviolent drug offense and was sentenced to spend the rest of her life without parole behind bars the rest of her life for her first nonviolent drug offense. Um, it's actually hard to believe that I'm sitting here on stage with her today. I wrote a story about Sharonda in July of 2015, and she was granted clemency by President Obama five months later. <laughs> Kevin Ring is the president of Families Against Mandatory Minimums, FAM. I speak to him often about criminal justice reform policy. He's especially well informed about what works and what doesn't work because he also spent time in federal prison. He served a 15-month sentence for his role in the Jack Abramoff lobbying scandal. And also with us today is Brittany Barnett. She's Sharonda Jones' attorney and co-founder of the Buried Alive Project. She has represented eight inmates who have been granted clemency, including Alice Marie Johnson, who recently received a commuted sentence from President Trump. She left a lucrative, a very lucrative job as a lawyer in Dallas to do this kind of work. And she has a very personal story that brought her in contact with the federal prison system. So let's begin. Sharonda, I want to start with you. When we debate policy, these conversations can be quite abstract and fail to capture the perspective of individuals like you mm -hmm. who have had direct experience with the criminal justice system. Um, I'm wondering if you can tell us today about the circumstances that led to your incarceration and your life sentence without parole. 
first of all, I want to say thanks for having me here today. I was caught up in a ongoing conspiracy in a small town, Terrell, Texas, with over 100 individuals. Out of everybody, I mean, all the people that was, was on the case, I was the only one to receive a life sentence. And the courts actually said that I was the middle person. Not the high end, nor the low end. I was the middle person, and I was the only one who received a life sentence. And why a life sentence? A life sentence because uh, was it all basically I took it to trial. Taking it to trial, you are guaranteed 99.9% .9 to get a life sentence with a con drug conspiracy case. And your daughter at that point was how old when she you was present? eight? She was eight. It's actually, I left work one day on my lunch break, never to return. She was at school, I was at work. And you, I remember you went to that hearing, you actually brought your purse and everything and you yeah. thought you were... I went on my lunch break, never to return. Can you tell the group here today what your daily life was like in prison and whether there were any classes or anything, especially for someone in for life, for, that were rehabilitative? After about five years, prison became a norm for me. Days or months didn't matter to me. It was like just wake up and do the same thing every day. And what was that? What did you do every day? Tell I us programmed about the whole stuff. time. However, programming for a lifer, you kind of like at the bottom of a list because they want to give people that's getting out within 18 months the chance to take the program. So I was always on the bottom of a list. But however, I managed to take over 30 programs. What kind of programs did you take? My main program, I was a cosmetologist going in, so I taught cosmetology for 11 years. In, in prison? In prison. Taught. Yes. And I know you took Bible classes. What were some of Parenting, the other things? Uh, office technology. I took all sort of classes that helped me rebuild, like, rebuild my relationship with my daughter. I would take like little things to just keep my mind stimulated. And I remember a story, your mother also was yes. in prison and died in prison and, and what happened they, with, with prison officials and, and that? Well, I asked prison officials if I would be able to go because I was a model inmate. And uh, of course they said no. But the shocking point was like staff members was uh, offering to sign up to take me to the service. However, they said no. That was the most heartbreaking thing for me during the whole 16 years and nine months that you weren't able to go to your mother. That I wasn't able service. to go to her service, Narcia, at the end. And were you able to keep in touch with your daughter uh, on a routine basis? Yes, I use, we get 300 minutes a month on phone time and I use 10 minutes a day, every day. <laughs> like I actually didn't call other people unless she was like, oh mom, I'm okay, bye. So there was like two minutes, I got eight minutes left to call somebody else. Same thing. <laughs> 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 yeah, for sure. You came out in December, uh, or you were given uh, clemency in December 2015, yes. just in time for your first grandchild, yes. your granddaughter, to mm -hmm. be born to your daughter, Clinicia, when, uh, who was eight when, when, when you went into prison. Tell us a little bit about what your reentry into society was like after 16 years. Reentry was a little hard for me. However, I had Brittany and my daughter and some family members helping me because at the halfway house, that was the most difficult situation ever because you're not allowed to have extra outside help and you're not allowed to have a car. So after 16 years and nine months, getting on a bus for the first time, that was like unreal to me. I was like, I don't know these people. So I would get on the bus, go to the bus stops and ask like, 
13, 14 year olds, can you just help me with this? Tell me where to go, tell me where to get off, make sure I get off on time, because it was crazy. Tell us, what are, what are you doing now? I know you have this great interest in cooking. Tell us about your work. I'm co-founder of the Buried Alive program. However, my passion is cooking. So I'm in the process now of building a food truck only to hire the ex-offenders at the halfway house. Because I saw a big need for hiring. And as soon as you tell them you're an ex-felon, they was like, no, we're gonna, we'll call you later. They never call. So that's my goal. Brittany, how did you get involved in Sharonda's case? How did you begin advocating for her? I came across Sharonda's case as a law student writing a research paper about the disparities in sentencing between crack and powder cocaine and just really wanted to humanize my paper and literally just did a Google search of women serving life and this old YouTube video of Sharonda popped up. Um, and this was almost 10 years ago, and I um, sent her a card. I'm this law student, and <laughs> told her that I was gonna help her, even though at the time I had no idea how, but. <laughs> and my response was, yeah, right. <laughs> Kevin, you entered the system under very different circumstances. Mm -hmm. What was your experience in prison like, and what compelled you to get involved after prison as an advocate against mandatory minimums? Sure. Well, I served a year and a half in prison, and I had been a policy guy on Capitol Hill. I had written criminal justice laws. I ended up serving time with people who were serving longer sentences because of the laws I'd written. So that's a real comeuppance. Um, and I certainly had an idea about what prison was like that was different than what I saw when I went. Um, I wouldn't say I sound like Tom Cotton before. Uh, but I wasn't well educated about who was in prison. And so there's no club feds. I mean, I served time with people who were there for drugs and guns. The prison population was mostly brown and black, um, no matter where you go in the federal system. Um, but what I saw there, I had been working at FAM for six years, and I knew the sentencing laws were crazy, um, but I didn't know a lot about prison policy. And unlike Sharonda's experience, although some of it you said was busy work or just keeping your mind stimulated, I didn't see a lot that was helping people get back on their feet. People were being warehoused. Uh, the drug treatment program was decent, but I saw a lot of people who had anger management problems, mm -hmm. um, you know, were, were distanced from their family, over 500 miles, having trouble keeping touch. I did the same thing Sharonda did, 300 minutes, 10 minutes a night, five minutes each kid. Um, but I just saw people wasting away. If you had job skills when you went, they atrophied. Um, most people, though, didn't even have a lot of job skills. People would talk about, what's, a, what's an app for their phone? They didn't even know what an iPhone was. And so I thought, these people are gonna come out with the stigma of a conviction and have to try to make it. So when I got back out and went back to FAM, I said, we've gotta get involved in prison reform, not just sentencing, because it matters. Um, the length of your sentence matters to your reentry. Um, if you've been on a shelf that long, it's that much harder to get back on your feet. And so I also got to see it from the family perspective of somebody who's in there. And I'll just say, at FAM, we work with the families of people who have loved ones in prison, both federal and state. And what's happening right now in the federal debate is disgusting for families to watch. Um, because? Because they're hurting so badly. They want just modest reforms. Nothing that in this First Step Act that's being debated would eliminate classes of mandatory minimums. It's not a 
jailbreak. It's nothing major at all. This is really modest incremental reform. Things like just getting decent programming so the person has a chance when they get out. Mm -hmm. Getting families closer to home so they can actually visit them because some families it's too expensive. They have to get a hotel to stay. Just these real modest changes. And these families came to town. They've rallied here. They've made calls. They were told if there were 60 votes and the president would support it, which didn't seem likely two years ago that President Trump would support this, that it would be brought up for a vote. And now they're told, even though there's probably 80 votes for this bill, and the House passed it, and the president has endorsed it, that it's not coming up. And so I just got to say, it's not a game to the people who are in prison. It's not funny political theater. It's not about, you know, can we keep the caucus united or what's going to happen. Um, it's, it's a matter, maybe not of life and death, but it's a matter of keeping their families together. And so this is why people hate Washington. Um, if it wasn't clear already, uh, the families that we talk to, they cannot believe that this can't come up and be passed. You mentioned President Trump. Um, Brittany, you, along with being the lawyer for people like uh, Sharonda and for people who got clemency under President Obama, you were the lawyer for Alice Marie Johnson. Um, what are your thoughts about President Trump's support for this issue? And what was it like working with the White House? So, yeah, I was one of the lawyers for Alice Johnson with uh, Jennifer Turner with ACLU. And, you know, I may not agree with anything else that happens um, politically. I have different views. But criminal justice reform, I think, is just not a political issue. It's a people issue, just as Kevin was mentioning. And I think the president's support of the First Step Act and criminal justice reform is critical and great. I think the First Step Act is a great first step that is long overdue for many people. And, you know, the thing is, working with the White House and the support of the president, they can't pass laws. We need Congress to work and get these laws passed because that is what's going to make the change, and that is exactly what we need. Kevin, um, could you talk a little bit about the racial disparities in sentencing and the prison system? Obviously, you're a white man um, that went to jail for a white-collar crime. Mm -hmm. um, have you been surprised by the range of stigmas associated with conviction? Yeah. I mean, it's one of those things where I recognize it, but I also have to recognize how much different my experience is. I mean, I had things like when I came out of prison, I had to do 200 hours of community service. And I couldn't get a job stacking books at the local used bookstore in Montgomery County, Maryland, which is a pretty progressive place. And I was a nonviolent offender, white, educated, you know, law school degree, and I couldn't get that. So I thought, I was reminded, what, would, what must that be like for somebody who's totally different than I am, who might be coming out with a violent offense, maybe African American or of color? And so you don't. You don't go into the prison system, you don't spend a year and a half, no matter what prison you're in, and not see the racial disparity in front of your face. You see it in the way that the guards treat the prisoners. I mean, I was definitely treated differently um, because, because I was white. So, you know, you can look at the numbers, you can look at the statistics. A society that has the racial problem we have is certainly not, the, the criminal justice system isn't immune to that. So whether the problem comes at an education level because of poverty, because of other inputs, I'm not sure. But you, the criminal justice system, you know, is fraught with that kind of disparity. And I, you know, I was sorry to see it firsthand, but I did. 
We saw a little bit of a video that the Post made about Sharonda's daughter, Clinicia, and what she had to go through while her mother was in prison. I would like each of you to talk about, um, we often forget the impact that prison has, not only on the inmate, but the families involved. And could you talk a little bit about the impact on your daughter, Clinicia? First of all, I want to make it clear, I committed a crime, and I deserve time. However, life was uh, too tough of a sentence for me in my situation. The courts proved that I was the middle person. However, the high-level end person only got like six or seven years. Uh, that was just really tough for me. Uh, being without my daughter for 16 years and nine months was the toughest me re-entering society task that I had to deal with because I didn't know her. I knew her as an eight-year-old, and I was still treating her like an eight-year-old, and she had to say, Mom, I'm grown now. Mm. You know, I have my own child, and it was still hard, and it's hard for me, like, looking at that video coming in here, I almost had to just turn away because I still think she's eight. Like, that's the hardest part. And one thing that I learned, I'm not anxious about anything. After 16 years and nine months, I have patience. Like, I see people running all over the place on their phones, upset. <laughs> I'm just looking at them like, really? <laughs> patience is what I learned from the whole experience. Like, nothing bothers me now. Oh, what a I'm lesson for all so of us. I'm so happy to be with my daughter, raising my granddaughter, and like, she called me mom. Like, she say granny, but she'll say, oh, no, mom. <laughs> so, I'm just so excited that I have a second chance to be with her. And Brittany, besides being Sharonda's lawyer and uh, the law school student who found her case, you had your own personal experience with the federal prison system. Can you tell us about that? Yes, a defining moment of my life can be attributed to a seven-digit number, 1374671. And that was a number assigned to my mother by the Texas Department of Criminal Justice when she began serving a eight-year prison sentence. And so I experienced it firsthand with the incarceration of my own mom. And even as an adult, when she went, it was, I mean, it was devastating. So I can't imagine being eight or, or younger than that and having to be without my mom. And it gave me a firsthand experience and an up-close look is, that's my mama. These are not bad people. They made bad choices. And that's something that really resonated with me as I do this work and as I represented Sharonda. I mean, she's totally one of my best friends today. We talk every single day. And, you know, I feel, as a lawyer, privileged to do this work. And what is the organization that you have, are both started? You also had an organization in prison for daughters and, and mothers. Can you talk about that and also the organization that you're involved with now? Yes, absolutely. So after I experienced incarceration of my mom, I founded Girls Embracing Mothers in Texas. And for the past six years, we've partnered with the Texas Department of Criminal Justice for in monthly enhanced prison visits between daughters and their incarcerated mothers. Women are the fastest growing incarcerated population, and Texas incarcerates more women by sheer number than any other state in the country. And so this is a program that I'm proud of and proud to have used that experience to bring mothers and daughters together, and entirely grateful for the Texas Department of Criminal Justice to embrace us the way that they have. And Sharonda and I, after she was released, 
and the clemency work was starting to slow down. We're wondering, I wanted to stay involved and she wanted to use her experience to give back. And so we co-founded the Buried Alive Project with another client of mine who had life, Corey Jacobs. And the project is to raise awareness and help eliminate life without parole sentencing in the federal system for drug cases. And as Sharonda said, prison time was probably warranted in her case, but life without parole is the second most severe penalty permitted by law in America. She was serving the same amount of time as the Unabomber. What sense does that make? And so we want to raise awareness for it and also put together concrete solutions, mainly by building a coalition super team of lawyers, as I like to say, lawyers that are in law school, like I was, are coming out, and that can help represent people serving life. And we have to wrap this up um, in a minute. We have like 50 seconds left, but uh, Sharonda, I just wanted to end with you. Is there anything you'd like to tell this group today that they might not understand about prison that would help them moving forward in this, uh, toward criminal justice reform? As a lifer in prison, the reason why I sit here today because I fully understand. I understand the needs of the people that's left behind. And when I left, I promised that I would never be silent about this. Like. We have to understand that we are our sisters and brothers keepers, and a lot of people, a lot of people deserve time in prison, but life on drug charges is so unfair. Like, we have older women in there. I was at a medical facility with, like a nursing home, with people in there serving life sentences. I've seen many people die, and it's just no need for that. Like, if it's family members out there that can help these people, help them get back on their feet, give them a place to stay, we just need to stand up. And sometimes being silent is not the answer. Take a number, read the case, and look at it. A lot of people deserve to be home just like I deserve to be home with my family. So if you just please, please, <laughs> just keep your eyes open for cases. <laughs> Thank you so much, each of you, for joining us today and giving us your insights, your personal insights from being inside the system. Um, that's all the time we have, unfortunately, for this segment, but stay tuned for the next one. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.